Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, and that was the beginning of The Young People by Lancome. I'm so excited that this episode features one of the founders of Lancome, Ian Lynch. Following my series of episodes on horror, we are turning now to another form of art that plays on our astral world, that world of emotions and heart and intensity, music. So for a few episodes, I'll be talking about music with some of my favorite musicians. But these are not standard chats about the latest album or touring. Instead, we're talking about music itself and how it lives in the lives of these artists and in my life and in your lives and in life itself. Each episode also features a Spotify playlist uh, with all my favorite songs, or at least some of them, by the artists that appear in the show notes on patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. The first episode, uh, 237, featured Will Oldham, also known as Bonnie Prince Billy. 
Let me talk a little bit about music in Ireland <laughs> before I kick this episode off. When I moved here in 2019, one of the things that came rushing in right away was how different music was here. So, for instance, people had songs uh, that were their songs. I don't mean that they wrote them. And I definitely don't mean songs in the sense of, you know, someone screaming, this is my song while they're dancing at the club. But I mean, there was a traditional song that they related to, that they knew all the words to, and that felt deeply like it was theirs. In people's homes and in pubs, music would spring up with a direction that was invisible <laughs> to me amongst musicians. Spontaneous sometimes, even on the sidewalk outside my first house, neighbors would bring their instruments and play, which was also uh, very lovely during lockdowns. Whistles, fiddles, guitars, singing. Sometimes at an event uh, that I go to that was seemingly unrelated to music, a single person would just start to sing and the whole room would go quiet. And these songs were very often songs about people I didn't know, places I'd just heard of or never heard of, battles and brawls uh, that were new to me, sometimes even kind of slapstick violence that uh, I'd never heard of before. In the middle of town, on the busiest streets um, and some side streets, buskers played. People would just be playing songs. And sometimes these are <laughs> some of the most talented people I've ever heard, singing, playing a guitar or a concertina or a keyboard, and then they'd hand it off to the next person. Eventually, uh, as I would just think through this, I came to understand a bit more, and I even set up a music event at the National Concert Hall here with my friend Una Malali to try to capture some of this. We brought together musicians to switch off to each other, like how buskers did, or uh, how the changing of the lead in a traditional session would go here. Um, many of the musicians were Irish, some of them were from other places, so Dave Leo Pepe from Gang of Views, uh, Gemma Dougherty from Saint Sister, David Kitt, May Kay, Rory Fryers from And So I Watch You From Afar, Azumi Kimura, Derry Farrell, and it was all kind of conducted and uh, played through with Ben Castle, a composer. We called the concert Murmuration because we wanted the music to be able to change and move and spontaneously shift into a new form the way a flock of starlings changed its pattern in flight. And in fact, that changing of form is something that I would see again and again in Irish music and also in Irish myth and Irish conversation. The music of Ireland often draws in its environs. The see the landscape, the violence, the history, the way of speaking. And I know this might sound romantic, and of course not all Irish music does that, but the way of music that was new to me in Ireland does. I came to understand that to live here and to listen to this music, I was going to change. And I found myself trying to live up to um, this passage from a book called Invoking Ireland by the great Irish mystic John Moriarty. As the folktale sees, I see. As the folktale lives, I live. And the path to my door, that too is folktale. Coming here, you either undergo what people undergo in a folktale, or you'll never lift my latch. Little wonder. 
I so rarely hear my latch being lifted. Little wonder I so rarely hear my latch being lifted. Little wonder I so rarely hear my latch being lifted. I want to be able to lift that latch, <laughs> to live like a folktale. At times, when I listen to this episode's guest's music, the music of Ian Lynch, who is in Lancome, I can feel that latch lifting and the door shaking a bit, <laughs> which if it sounds a little scary to you, it can be. Along with the other members of Lancome, Dara Lynch, Cormac McDermott, Rady Pete, Ian takes the traditional music of Ireland and tends to it until it grows up from the earth in a new way with new kind of leaves and stems and thorns and flowers. It's almost a dark art, except that it is so beautiful, even as it can be sad and sometimes a bit scary. Ian is also the host of the excellent podcast, Fire Draw Near, which covers Irish music, but also um, sometimes it will cover many iterations and versions of one song. So it will trace histories and differences in the way one song is played again and again, which shows how these songs want to live and change through their performers, revealing that they have some kind of life of their own. We talk about time and music, um, how time and space might feel different in Ireland, and therefore that shows up in the songs. We talk about Irish music as drawing from rebellion, how to create without losing yourself to the unconscious, and also um, Irish music drawing from horror traditions. If that horror part is surprising to you, I'll just add here that Lancome takes their name from the false Lancome, or Long Lankin, who is a frightening character <laughs> from a child ballad. If you want to hear just how frightening, don't worry, I've included a version of the song False Lancome, performed by John Riley Jr. at the end of the show. And Ian has done an entire podcast episode uh, of Fire Draw Mirror about that one song. For each of these episodes, as I've said, I've created a Spotify playlist and you can find those in the show notes at patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. The show and the show notes are always free, but the show is supported by listeners, not sponsors. There are no ads for this show, and that's because I don't believe in them. I believe in creating a show of conversations that's funded um, in a kind of appreciation or reciprocity of those who listen. If that's you, if you've just liked this one episode, or many of them, including episodes I've done in the past with other musicians like Stephen Malcolmus, Ian Mackay, Patty Schemmel, Ted Leo, and more, please do support the show. It lives on because listeners like you give support to it. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. It's super easy to sign up. All right, let's kick things off. First, with my theme song, which I co-wrote with Jeb Havens and then Ben Chasney of Six Organs of Admittance, and then my conversation with Ian Lynch, and at the end, a version of False Lancome that you'll not soon forget. Here we go. Okay, so I'm going to start by asking you 
what is maybe could sound like a rude <laughs> question, but I promise I mean I've been it. asked rude questions. I, before. Yeah, who it's the okay. fuck do you think you? are? No, I promise <laughs> to ask it, and I mean it in earnest. Which is like, why are you guys so popular now? Like, at, what I mean, I don't mean like the building of the career or anything like that. I mean, there's this really unlikely aspect um, <laughs> of the kind of music you're bringing into the world being receiving the kind of uh, welcome that it's been receiving lately. I'm wondering what you think has made people ready for that, I would suppose. Because I'm sure, obviously, a lot of people liked your music before, but there's this growing kind of interest and growing uh, connection to it. And I'm just wondering what that's about beyond just, well, we're a hardworking band. We've like been building up the ranks. It still is a little surprising. And the only thing I can think of is that culturally something has happened to make people be able to receive it. Yeah, well, I mean, that would be kind of along the lines of, um, <laughs> that would be along the lines of my explanation as well. I think to me, it definitely feels like we're at the moment, like riding the crest of a wave of something that's going on culturally that was not there before and like maybe it's it's a few different strands that's coming together but just at the moment it seems that whatever the cultural conditions are it's like kind of ripe for people to start investigating like traditional music and folk music whether they're coming from like a, a metal background or like whatever musical genre background or an art background it's just whatever's going on um, you know, like there's the whole like folk horror thing that's going on in kind of numerous areas. Um, there's in all parts of like I think all parts of cultural life in Ireland. There's like a newfound, uh, I wouldn't say appreciation, but people are finding new ways to interrogate Irishness. Um, I think that's a big thing that's going on in Ireland at the moment. But we, like outside of Ireland as well, there's different things going on where I just think. I think we can go down any number of roads of these like separate strands and talk about them at length. But just to put it very generally, just the conditions are just really like very ripe for um, ripe, I should say, to receive a band like us and what we're doing and the different strands of things that we're pulling together. Because I think we're not just finding like new audiences coming from one particular like subgenre or subsection of society but there's people coming from all different areas and all different backgrounds are finding something in the music that we're putting out yeah i mean i think that's right like we will go down all those passageways because that's they're all super interesting to me that i think i'm still i'm just trying to work it out and it <laughs> like i said it can sound almost like offensive obviously you guys have had played a part in making people ready for it. But even you, when you're talking about your podcast, Fire Draw Near, you're, um, you've said many times, I just thought no one's going to listen to this. No one's going to, and you know, and now it's become, you know, really widely listened to and appreciated. So something has happened. And I think, you know, I know you had that kind of kinetic, energy that was surrounding your band after you had to uh, surrounding Lancome after you had to cancel dates and for lockdown you're about to you know i feel like kind of take the stage in a way and i think some of that got held 
for a couple of years and then mm. opened up. It could be the home. I mean, maybe it's like, you know, when I think about traditional Irish music and the places it was played, which was not the pub, but the home mostly, and still probably mostly at, at home. So people think of it being played at pubs, which of course it is, but maybe it's like a, a homeness or something like that. Although <laughs> your music doesn't sound like that music. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe well, I'm wrong about it, but maybe there's a thread there of like the you know the inertia or something like that of it yeah no no i I think what you're saying about home music i think that's definitely an aspect of it because i think the kind of approach that we have towards the music is certainly a more laid back and meditative approach it's not like the kind of like upbeat 120 bpm like reels and jigs or you know renditions of songs like even you know the style of the dubliners or that kind of upbeat like you know like fists in the air kind of chat it's not that at all i think it's it's much more suited to listen to at home preferably in a reclined position and i think that definitely has like a part to do with the popularity that because we certainly like grew during lockdown you know when we cancelled all those gigs at the start of lockdown i think it was definitely a fear that oh no like these are gone now how long is this whole thing gonna last when we come back are people gonna have forgotten about us but like obviously they didn't. I think we grew even more popular and the band grew stronger over that period. And I think it part of that has to do with the nature of the actual music that we make itself. Yeah. I think a lot of people came to it during that time and it suited what was going on in a way. Yeah, because I'm even thinking about the solo singing that happens in a lot of Irish music. It doesn't really happen on Lancome Records, but it does feel like it when Rady's singing sometimes, that actually she's singing in a landscape, you know? And so I think that people who are at home for a long time, you know, really connecting just to the act of, like, singing alone, singing to themselves, walking around the house and, you know, making their own music because they can't see it, they're you know, performing all on their own. So I think maybe that has something to do with it too, because I can, uh, especially, yeah, especially the songs that, um, like, Go Dig My Grave, maybe the easiest example to pull from are the one that most people know. Go dig my grave, both wide and deep. Place a marble stone at my head and feet and on my breast a snow white dove to tell this world that I died for like yes <laughs> not to discount your 
fart and everybody else's fart in that song. But it does it does seem like a, a solo presence. Now it's not the kind of solo presence where someone's at like an Irish event and they just start singing and you can hear a pin drop because everybody shuts the fuck up. But it is, you know, even in that, there might be wind outside and rain outside or whatever when someone's singing. So maybe it has something to do with that too, like the personal experience of how we make music in our houses in an everyday way, not just how we listen to it. Yeah, absolutely. Because the kind of situations you described there during lockdown, that's definitely something that I would have like been getting up to um, when I was, you know, just day to day during lockdown, like going out and singing in this concrete pipe uh, on in a building site near where I lived. Or I went to the, I used to go to the factory where my dad worked back in the eighties, and it was abandoned. It's, it's since been knocked down, but just go in there and sit in the cockpit of this giant crane and sing songs and you know just kind of doing it to pass the time and just getting interested in the different acoustics of different spaces but um i think that that solo style of traditional singing that you talk about there like for us that's really the kind of the cornerstone of the tradition and that's where we would be drawn most influence from is from like you know going to singing sessions or listening to recordings of but it's all solo unaccompanied singing and i think like i kind of speaking for everybody here because i know they would agree but i think when you listen to a good singer singing a song there's enough in there you don't need an arrangement you don't need accompaniment to instruments there's there's enough going on just in the human voice and the dynamics and the ornamentation and stuff that people can bring into it where it's it's like more than enough to hold your interest um, and that's yeah, that's definitely where we would all be coming from in terms of our approach to traditional singing. Yeah, it's it's funny. Every interview I've listened to with you, there's so many like lockdown related questions, but I'm actually finding them because a lot of the interviews happen during lockdowns here. But I'm I'm finding actually that there's a real appropriateness to some of it with you because I'm thinking also. Let me say a few things and we can jump off on whatever one you want. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, there are all these like reports of more people encountering ghosts and paranormal experience during lockdown. And part of that is because they were just hearing things that they hadn't heard. Part of it's probably more paranormal things happening. Who knows? But part of it was just they were hearing things. So people are tuned to sound in like a completely different way because everything was quieter. The traffic wasn't on the street. So people were actually not experiencing the vasoconstricting noise of like cars always going by things were opening up their ears were opening up they could hear things so when i'm thinking about you going into those tunnels and like paying attention to some extent everybody was doing a version of like what is that what's that noise i've never heard that before yeah 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 no absolutely but i think i was listening to one of your um episodes before um maybe talking about how people were like oh yeah there's so much more wildlife yeah, out on the streets yeah. and there's a lot more birds and foxes out, but yeah. it's, it's literally that people are stopping to kind of notice these things you know um and yeah there were, i mean i kind of got sick of wellness kind of people during lockdown talking about oh you know there's a chance for all of us to yeah, yeah. just slow down and you know feel things a bit more but i mean there definitely was that aspect to it um i suppose just having the the time and the just endless days of nothingness to just investigate whatever we felt like doing at the time um it seems kind of natural that yet people would kind of find solace in just their own unaccompanied voice whether that's like talking to themselves or singing to themselves or whatever like i talk to myself all the time when i'm at home yeah Uh, yeah, i I love it um yeah me too (laughs) yeah there's there's a um 
there's a way I think in which singing is like making your own voice unfamiliar to you. You know, it's like why I, you know, I, other people just get so embarrassed to sing in front of someone else. Like it's just, it's you, but it's not you at the same time. So it does yeah. give you company, you know, yeah. because it, it's a, it's your own kind of stranger, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I remember, I mean, that just brings to mind, like something I, I felt for years in kind of trying to find my own singing voice because we all start off singing like putting on an American accent or putting on an English accent. We're trying to find your own voice and figuring out what is that voice. I remember I started to sing traditional songs from Dublin and then Oda kind of being like putting on this Dublin accent because you're trying to over <laughs> uh, compensate for the voices you were putting on before and then gradually drawing that back and just, you know, it takes years and years to kind of find a singing voice that you feel like really you can kind of live in and feel comfortable with you know that's my experience anyway back to what you were saying about that um the singing uh and the the kind of comfort i was also thinking about with shanos singing so people listening to this probably most of them won't know what shanos is and I don't actually know how to accurately describe it. I even took like a Shano singing class once, but I still don't know how to say what it is. So maybe you could give a little definition before I go on here a little bit more. Um, yeah, to put it quite simply, Shanos, it um, translates as old style. Yeah. And it it's just unaccompanied singing in the Irish language, really like singing of traditional songs in the Irish language. That's what people would okay. prefer. Yeah. Good. Well, so one of the things with Shanos is like when people like they have these big competitions here where or what what's that called it's the, the Oroctus. yeah 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 um and part of it is with each syllable there can be all these different like trills and variations right and i was thinking about that before you know having you here today i was like what is that you know cuz you guys do that too to some extent and i just thought it's it's so interesting that you know, time is so long here and that you would fill one syllable with all these different variations in it that actually like it connects you with time differently than because it's not like a quick hello, you know, it's, well, I'm not going to sing like hello, <laughs> but it, there, there can be all this like drawn out, like length variation wandering around in like one syllable and then into the next. And so it's this really different experience of time when you listen to music um, with, you know, when you listen to Shano's music. And I think that that probably relates to just the length of Irish history, you know, um, and just the, the sense of like old time here that, you know, in the U S definitely doesn't exist. There's like that joke, which is, uh, you know, an Irish person, what is it like an American thinks 200 years is long and an Irish person thinks 200 miles is far, you know? So like <laughs> time <laughs> yeah, is, yeah, you yeah. know, I think the academic term for the kind of ornamentation you're describing, there's melismata and it's the, uh, it's like the yet yeah, almost like putting in extra vowels, um, where where only a certain number exist in the actual like text of the song, um, and yeah, like the drawing out of the song. It's almost like when you start to sing a song. I've I've heard people talk about this before, where you hear like the last line of a song may be spoken, and the first line of a song might be spoken when you're just getting into it, and it's kind of like you're taking the listener or you're taking yourself even out of the kind of everyday mundane world of just simple speech and that 
spoken line at the start and the spoken line at the end is a way of kind of entering into this other liminal zone and then you're kind of easing everybody back into it at the end back into everyday speech so that really it, it in when you're singing it's like an elevated form of communication or an elevated form of working with words it's something out of the ordinary it's something like almost magical um and yeah i think it's it's an interesting thing to think about the, the passage of time and the relativity of that and how people can experience it in different ways um and just like i mean my own brain wants to go to like stories of the other world and Do, that yeah. whole kind go of ahead. thing you know um but yeah i think it's 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 a really interesting way i just wonder how people might have imagined that as um taking place in the past you know yeah i mean right and shanos is itself then you know even in the name is referential of time right um so mm. but i think it yeah i was thinking of other world stuff i was thinking of like uh well i mean something i noticed from moving here is how little what i as an american would consider a directness exists here things are windy you know even the roads like driving on an irish road actually does feel longer even if the distance is shorter because there's fucking roundabouts everywhere so you know american highway you just go straight you're there you know i can make it from los angeles to san francisco in five hours and that's like the length of the whole you know island here you could never do that here because you'd be going into all these like turns and twists. And um, so there's that, you know, there's walls here, you know, stone walls are not like straight walls, you know, they wind around, they have holes in them, you know, everything is just kind of crooked and it not, I don't mean crooked, like, you know, bad or sinister. Yeah. yeah, Although there's that too sometimes, (laughs) (laughs) but like, so I was thinking about that. And then I was also thinking about the other world thing where, yeah, like you walk into, you know, the, you meet the fairies and they, you know, you eat a, eat a piece of their food and you wake up a hundred years later or something like that. You think you've been gone for a day. And then I'm also thinking about the, the angels, like this angelic thing where, you know, Emmanuel Swedenborg, this mystic, he said, Oh, like what, what human beings would write in a full book, an angel could say in a single word or a single sentence. It's almost as if like Irish people are, Irish music is much more uh, in touch and and Irish literature and so forth is more in touch with like translating the word of the angel or something like that. Like, I'm just going to give so much. I need to show you how many layers there are to each thing that we say. Um, so there's some sort of like crooked complexity that's happening there with space and time somehow. Yeah, a crooked complexity. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's, um, I, there, I think something there in the Irish psyche, which is, it's kind of like a, an illogic way of going about things, maybe. And I can imagine it's infuriating to people from <laughs> other countries and other cultures. Um, but I did, I read a really interesting article years ago um by i think it was kevin danaher in the irish folklore commission but he was talking about this very thing um like talking about the irish psyche and how it it kind of on some levels i'm not you know 
trying to exoticize the whole thing and that you know what's the kind of the, the fake quote that everybody talks about about the irish being like in like uh, impenetrable to modern day psychoanalysis or uh, yeah freud said freud said yeah. the irish couldn't be psychoanalysis. <laughs> yeah no. but he kind of he kind of brought all this thing back to the fact that we were never invaded by the romans and I mean, it's going a long way back, obviously. And I don't know. I mean, it's it was an interesting article. Anyway, I don't know if I fully agree with it. But just talking about that, the the kind of the Irish psyche never kind of was taken over by this kind of very binary way of looking at the world. This kind of black and white way of looking at the world, um, where you know there's like there's good and evil, there's angels and demons, and that even that kind of um, very thing itself giving rise to the fairies who were like fell in between you know one of the origin stories of the fairies were that they were cast out of heaven um, and fallen on their way down to hell but they landed in earth and on earth instead and that's where they came from um but it's it's definitely there and like a lot of things with irish culture i'd say i'd have a, a kind of a love-hate relationship <laughs> with that that way of thinking um, and yeah. but i think there's definitely like something to be said for taking your time with things the circumlocution that happens right. around things the um circumnavigation of different things in conversation and in life as well you know it's nice not to be in a rush all the time yeah well i mean you guys i mean lancome is definitely a band of circumnavigation and circumlocution because you just you hover around a song you know i mean again and again i mean the songs that you play I, it is again it's just this like the, this music thing in ireland okay so there's so many things to say as an american that just are different to me and i've come to grow, i've grown used to them in a way that they've become in a lot of ways some of the things you're talking about the psyche before whatever they become invisible to me because i've become accustomed to them now but some of the stuff is you know especially with music um like for instance, this is a very simple one. Like my boyfriend has a song, you know. Like if it comes on, you know, like it, it, when people are singing it, like that's his, you know, Irish song that he knows, and everybody in his family has one too. You don't have that in the U.S. You might be like, "This is my song" when you go to the club, but that Karaoke, gets replaced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that gets replaced, you know, um, by the next song or whatever. But so one, so there's that. But then I was also just thinking about. The way, I mean, there isn't, there is definitely American traditional music. And I'm sure if I said that there wasn't any, I'm going to get tons of shit from <laughs> yeah. people. But it's not, the, it's just not the same. It doesn't live the same in people's lives in yeah. America. And I think like, like I was trying to think about, you know, the two big kind of breakout irish sounding bands and it's you guys in the gloaming essentially well, the gloaming you know they write these songs that feel very finished your songs don't i mean this as a compliment too like i loved gloaming but i mean this as a compliment to you like they don't feel finished like they're undone they're waiting after you're done with them to find another form and another form and another form they're always kind of growing even as i listen to them they have this plant-like feeling, like they're coming up from the earth, whereas Gloaming's music is more like, okay, that song's done, what's the next one? And so there is, like you said, this circumnavigation, circum, you know, the... Well, it's interesting, it's the circumnavigation around. that you're talking about, I, I hear that in what we were just talking about, that like the melismatic ornamentation, yeah. whereby it's like 
it's playing around with the melody you're going you're kind of weaving the orientation around what the actual melody of the tune is yeah. you know you're circumnavigating the tune rather than just following it straight along right yeah exactly it's it's leading it i mean it's leading you in a way that i suppose if you're writing a song in a different way i hesitate to even say songwriting like Will Oldham once said, like, I don't like calling it songwriting because songs come in different ways. It's not just writing. Mm -hmm. But if you're not writing it in a standard way, if instead you're kind of following it and trying to find the form that it wants to take through and with you, it's just a different process. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And to be honest, like, I was was thinking about this interview and I was thinking one thing that I've come to realize only very recently as well, that what we're doing with Lancum in a sense um, it kind of parallels my own kind of journey and trying to figure out what this all is you know like what is Irish music and what's my relation to it and on a deeper level what what does it mean even to be Irish like who am I how do I relate to this culture how much does it mean to me like as I said earlier on like I've always had a, a love hate relationship with Irish culture something that's always been present in my life from a very very early age from like you know being the age of three and my dad telling me you know when you grow up you should learn how to speak Irish because the British made us hate our own language and you know it's up to us to relearn it again so I've always had this thing hanging over me so in a way all these things we're talking about all kind of stem back to that for me because obviously I'm in a band of four other people we all have our own reasons for doing what we do but for me it feels like it's the whole thing is just a search for me to figure out what is my relationship to this thing and it that as well is a journey that takes many twists and turns yeah it's it's interesting because you don't did you say you stopped drinking like at some point i heard you in like two years ago okay yeah yeah so i was thinking about with wild rover which is you know for people don't know ian's done three episodes on wild rover and so many iterations in its history on his podcast and then of course lancome has a great version of it but it doesn't it's un i mean it's oh, i wouldn't have known it was wild rover really first of all i didn't know wild i'd never heard wild rover before the, until the, i heard your the, version the, of no name ever yeah, yeah, what, yeah really never yeah well I thought, yeah no nay, never um, <laughs> <laughs> but i was thinking like that part that no nay never part that's like so raucous and loud that is the part that represents the exact kind of love hate irish thing that you were talking about it's like well, I'm not ever going to drink again, but here I'm shouting that at the at the pub. You guys have basically removed that element from the song when you play it and or or decided not to put it in. And um for me, that sounds like a like a version of you kind of resolving this like love hate thing maybe that's why you focus on wild rovers not to psychoanalyze you but because you can't because you can't be but, 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 uh, yeah. but i'm impervious yeah exactly but like maybe that's part of you know it's like oh if there's this kind of love hate tension between irishness it's in that song in that moment where people are shouting that you know so i'm not actually taking the path forward of not being the wild rover anymore i'm actually kind of losing it and so then you create this version of the song, which you focus on really heavily, and you're like, and I'm actually not going to, we're not going to take it down that path. I'm going to move it forward without that tension. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting, because I think there is, 
like within that song there's there's so much tension that exists in it because even in the version that people sing in the raucous manner in the pubs they're singing like basically saying like i'm never going to drink again no one ever no more but just it's the manner in which it's sung you know it's it's sung in a very like booze up kind of way no one ever almost in like a self-referential is there like a bit of irony there or something else so i think even it, within the song as it's sung there's definitely like some kind of like just inner tension there but um yeah obviously for us in the version that we chose to sing is a very it's sobering and in, in many different ways no fun intended but um and it you know it's a song that focuses on the regret and the the shame that the narrator feels you know if i had half the money that i spent in your care it would buy me 10 acres and my family rare you know it's 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 a, and you're going god it's why these people are in the pubs like singing and shouting like it's you know a big joyous occasion like it's a really really sad song you know so like you know people often talk about Lancome they go oh you know you're kind of like you're bringing this like sadness and this moroseness to the songs but I think it's there it's there in the music already you know it's just if you if there's like so I think there's so many different aspects to Irish music and I think all the different strands of human culture and human emotional experience are there but I think it's whatever you're focusing on you're going to find and for us maybe we're yeah we are focusing on those aspects a little bit more than others but I I would make the case though that they are definitely there already yeah well and just to yeah we'll take it in this direction um I heard Radiana podcast recently saying and she was like and I think everybody in the band agrees with us. She was like, we kind of just want to make like soundtracks for horror movies. <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, I definitely hear that. Um, I mean, even in the name of your band, right. Is like related to this fucking sinister. It's one of the goriest. Yeah. I, th- out there. Yeah. There's an episode of fire drawn near where, um, you cover long Lankin or false Lankin or whatever it is. There's also, uh, you know, oh, you didn't mention this on the show, but John Banville's first book is called Long Lankin. And it's a book of stories that's unlike any of his other any of his other novels, any of his other works. And it's short stories that all have this weird there's always a weird figure in in each of the stories that does something kind of strange and it's very creepy. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'll check it out. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't aware of that before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't, and I didn't know what, I didn't know what Long Lake it was oh, okay. yeah, when yeah. I got the book. I just read it and I was like, wow, these are all weird encounters. It almost seems like they're encountering fairies, but it never like quite says it, you know? And then <laughs> that I listened to your episode and I was like, oh shit, that's yeah. that. So, you know, this Lankin figure, or Lancome figure is like this super sinister in the high grass, whatever. So you're founded in horror. I mean, the band is founded in a horror story, you know, a yeah. story of murder, probably the supernatural or the, or the other world or whatever. I mean, and the sound does trace that contour for sure. So I wanted to talk about that. I mean, I, horror is my most very favorite genre and, um, you know, it's my book is a horror novel essentially, um, and I just did a bunch of episodes on horror. So let's talk about that for yeah, a bit. brilliant, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like yeah, it's definitely an aspect that's there, and I would say that horror is absolutely my favorite genre as well. Like I, I've been a fan of horror films since I remember like being 
seven or eight and my dad letting me come downstairs to watch like Alien and Jaws and stuff like that and like old like Hammer Horror films and stuff you know when my ma wasn't there and then I think I was about nine or ten and I started babysitting for my two sisters and my brother back in the 80s you know in Ireland <laughs> used to do stuff like that but I remember there was um, like a, a show that was on every week called Friday Night Fright where there would be like a horror film or two and I used to always stay up and watch them even when like totally terrified me but um, then it's just something I carried on through my years like when I was in my teenage years I was big into like finding the old Hammer horror films and stuff like that um, and got like really into Lovecraft and, and stuff like that like Robert Chambers and stuff later on but um, yeah it's definitely something that's been with me through my whole life um, and even probably reflected in my love of metal music which I got into from a very early age as well like started listening to Iron Maiden when I was eight or nine as well um so it's really hard for me to like to separate the two you know and i wouldn't even say that like with lancome it's been like a conscious effort to be like oh we want to make something that sounds horrible more to do that like the i know the the sense of horror both like as a literary genre as a like as film genre and kind of like darkness in music being something that's kind of just like deeply ingrained within my consciousness like from a very early age that now when I go to like make music or write music on on, in any way it's just something that just comes out naturally and in in order for that music to sound good to me it generally is going to have some element of you know what you would call darkness or a rawness to it and it's just like when I talk about like making music within the kind of traditional or folk world like i mean there is one aspect of it where you want to be respectful to the material that you're dealing with um but also if you're making music and you're not making music that sounds good to you then what are you what are you even doing you know yeah. you have to remain true to your own musical reality like your internal understanding of music and what you like if you're not staying true to that then as far as i'm concerned you're kind of you're being a fake and that's the last thing you want to do. I would, I would hate to end up making music that I don't think, you know, that I don't kind of vibe with. Yeah, I think probably most people that make that kind of music are they they make it without knowing that they hate it because they're just driven by something else, and then they look upon it later and they're like, "Why? What have I, I done?" Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, they they have like a possession. They're, you know, they're in that horror story, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, I think. Like I said, it when I said the songs feel like they're coming up through the earth, as opposed to gloaming, sound more like sorry, not to just oppose you guys. Obviously, there's a lot of Irish, other Irish bands, but to me, they're just kind of easy go tos for the ones the world are responding to in a certain way. But the their music is more wind and water, and you have this very earthy feel, and the earth is really the place of horror i mean the things coming up from the ground you know mm. or from the underworld the other world you know whatever our root shock or whatever we want to talk about the way you want to talk about it and so uh, but yeah, that, no i like that and it's because yeah. it's it it really brings to mind a sense of like you know your past the buried past is, yeah, is yeah. coming up the things are growing from like feeding the nutrients feeding off the nutrients of the stuff that's you know in totally. our past and buried there and decaying under the soil yeah i really like that yeah, yeah. it's and, amazing and also like 
the songs are like um zombies or vampires or whatever they don't die like they keep coming back <laughs> keep yeah coming yeah back, there's a lot of parallels there you know like yeah, you just it. can't you can't bury it you <laughs> no know? matter how hard you try <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and it keeps wanting to find new form but i do think that there's something interesting about the livingness or the undeadness of the song in that way because i had um this uh this guy owen de varden who's uh oh yeah, uh, yeah he's like a uh, storyteller and is also does some medicine work, but he's a traveler's for people who don't know what travelers are and haven't listened to that episode, this <laughs> the indigenous uh, ethnic group here in Ireland. Um, but we talked about storytelling um, in traveler communities and how the stories vary as each person tells them. And I was like, mm. it doesn't feel like the story wants you to tell it a certain way, like really as if it's alive and has come to you and wants to sort of be carved by your, you know, in the air by your mouth and your tongue in a certain way. And he was like, yeah, like there's a, there's a way in which it wants me to tell it differently. And so I think maybe along this line of horror, we'll go deeper into horror in a second, but along this line of like horror, (laughs) do you sometimes feel afraid of the song when it arrives to be sort of selected by you? I just want to say, as an aside, you're going to love the film that I just did the soundtrack for. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) All You Need Is Death. Um, It's a song about an ancient cursed ballad that is, yeah, it has this taboo surrounding it that it should never be recorded or written down and somebody breaks it. Yeah, it's just, it just got announced yesterday. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But um, the question was whether, do I feel afraid when the, um, no, I've never feel afraid. I definitely feel like I'm interacting or dealing with something that has great power and that is it it's a almost like a source. What's the old um idea about memes before memes became a thing where that they were almost like these independent living things mm-hmm. that have figured out how to like these parasitic pieces of information yeah. that figured how to attach themselves to people's brains or whatever you know so like that thing where you look you're thinking of the song as being this powerful entity in itself and it's like i mean i've had this experience a few times about it's um false lankham being one of them that when you begin to sing a song like that on regular occasions like especially with these older narrative ballads you're so when i sing i close my eyes all the time i just don't like to have any like sensory input from around i close my eyes i start singing the song and you go into the world of a song and you're experiencing it as just a, a sequence of images and scenes you can see the, the people in the song and see the things that you're describing and usually when you're singing the song you're going back to the same place again like if you sing the song the first time and a person looks a certain way or a scene looks a certain way i find you'll when you go back to singing the song again you'll experience that in the same way and you're basically just experiencing singing the song as describing what you're seeing. So you're seeing these things, singing the lines. And what I found, like, I mean, singing a song like False Lancome, like, I don't know, it's 24 verses or something, it never feels like it's it's too, it's hard or it's like never like, you know, oh no, I have to learn the song. It's 24 verses long. It's literally just once you figured out what the story is, the the verses just come to you almost you know you hear it a few times and you know the general arc of the story um and there's been a lot of kind of work done on this by scholars in the past there's one book about a singer in scotland um i can't think of the author at the moment um 
but basically he's talking about like traditional singers in the past like you know going back to the 1700s and you know kind of that far back that they would have had in their head a whole kind of store of these like stock motifs and stock lines and when they went to sing the song they would basically be recomposing the song in situ so every time you sing it you're recomposing it i don't i don't think singers these days really do it in the same way but it sounds kind of like what own Devardun was talking about you have the basic bare bones of the story you know what it's going to do and then every time you sing it depending on the situation or the context you're going to change that a little bit and i think it's the same i've heard kind of descriptions of storytellers in the past and will be the same thing that they would have so many stories in their head and so many kind of like stock phrases or like even little runs of things where they could go into this two minute long kind of just repetition of a little aside while they regather and recollect you know if they feel themselves getting stuck they had all these different techniques of keeping a story going and keeping people entertained um but in my experience of us, I like I wouldn't do that thing where you recreate. Some in, in some songs are more kind of given to that, but not the longer narrative songs. It would basically be like I'd learn the song and then kind of sing it more or less the same way. Like maybe sometimes you leave a verse or two out, or um. But in general, you you would kind of I would before I when I started learning the song, I would maybe change some lines then to to suit myself. There's maybe some bits that I don't think work or some bits that I don't want to be singing, you know, just sometimes lines in these old songs, you're like, no, it's, that's not cool. But like, you know, yeah, yeah. so it would depend on that. But yeah, that's where I would do most of my changing of a song. And then, I mean, I, I would love to be like a, a singer in the in the old way who would basically be recomposing a ballad. Um, in, and I mean, some of these scholars have shown that the singers were doing these in incredibly complex ways. Like they would be having like, parallel verses where they would you know they you see this a lot in the older kind of child ballads where you'd sing a verse and then kind of parallel that description with another description and the whole ballad if you look at it then in the end you have 24 verses but it's like oh the first one is balanced out by the last one and in the middle there's these four verses that kind of balance each other out and it's they've drawn out all these really complex diagrams to show what was going on in like supposedly in the kind of um the consciousness of these singers as they were singing the songs uh-huh. but it's a very interesting area yeah yeah i mean i i just i keep thinking so um you know one of my very favorite bands is Longfish. do you know them like uh, daniel higgs his old band daniel uh, higgs yeah yeah, yeah yeah so it's and you know, a lot of their songs are, I wouldn't say they're storytelling songs. They're almost like conjuring <laughs> mechanisms. And I was just thinking about, you know, how, when I asked you, are, are you afraid? Like, does it like, cause you can feel it sort of wants something and it's working, you're working with that and moving with that. But like, sometimes when I listen to Longfish songs, there's one song in particular called Space Orgy. Um, but it, it actually sends me into a a place that's almost unbearable. Like I can't, it, it, uh, snags on a part of me that is actually really difficult for me to deal with. I don't mean emotionally. It's almost like the song's getting in, in a way that is quite threatening. So of course I listen to it often, (laughs) you know, but I actually can't listen to it that much anymore. When I was younger, I would just like, it was like I was throwing 
myself like a stone into the center of a pond or something like that. Just like fucking sink, you know, like, and, uh, I was just thinking about if I were making songs like that, what it would be like for me. And I, I'm, I just imagine, I mean, just listening to fire draw near, like, the, you know, your involved, your deep involvement with different iterations of song. I just wondered if it was, uh, if there were ones that just really, it wasn't about that they made you happy or they, they made you sad or that they worked in a sort of familiar emotive way, but just that they sent you to a place that was very uh, kind of hard to mediate or whatever. And if those were songs that you wanted to play or those were songs that you, so there's a lot of ifs here. Cause I don't know if you're having any of these experiences that I'm talking about, but if then when you heard a song like that, like when you tried to talk about long Lankin, it's like, you you were saying this song is very scary, like it's very eerie, yeah. you know. So I was thinking about like, does that draw you in to work with the song, or are you like, I'm not fucking with that one? Well, yeah. To me, there's like there's there's, there's two different scaries. Like there's scary, like talking about like Long Lankin or False Lankin. It's scary in a way. We're going okay, like this is a, a it's a creepy story. It's a real creepy story, especially those versions where they're talking like be, beware of false Lankham who lives in the hay and all this and like it's a, he's a weird kind of nature spirit or something I find like some of those lines you know oh, geez that's creepy but I wouldn't you know it's this kind of same way as when you watch a horror film you're like oh yeah I mean the story's creepy it's it's very atmospheric but I don't feel like I don't feel right, the like, content is creepy you know? but it's not intersecting with your being in a yeah, way that, yeah, yeah 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 but they're the only songs I've really felt like oh, I feel this like really like primal kind of like proper fear and i'm like i just don't even want to like go near that it's like a lot of murder ballads like when I, especially when i you know you could say that false lankham or long lankham is a murder ballad but the murder ballads where you're like no that's actually a true story you know like stuff like um like rose Connolly or like the knoxville girl or where it's just basically like you know oh yeah like i i got this woman pregnant so i killed her and i buried her under the ground and now they're gonna hang me fuck and you know that's yeah, the general yeah, yeah, narrative yeah. arc of the song those songs that and but it, you know going into like great descriptive verses of how like i you know bashed her head in or whatever it's like i just I can't can't be dealing with that there like yeah, those kind of songs yeah. those kind of murder ballads i feel like they're such that's just not something i want to mess with you know yeah i yeah. don't i don't like it <laughs> but not molly not molly braun that's not the same to you Molly Bond. Molly Bond, yeah. No. So wait, sorry. No, Molly Bond is is a song about someone who sh- shoots a swan that turns out to be his beloved. His yeah. beloved, but and maybe she was a swan. Maybe she had this apron that made her look like a swan. Whatever. It's yeah. it's can change from version to version. But just to give people a little background there in that song. Yeah, yeah. and there is a, like I, I mentioned in the podcast about that one. There is like one line of inquiry which kind of seems to say it could have really actually been a, a historical event yeah. and it might have happened but that's why i'm asking like but so that one doesn't count as a murder ballad to you no not really no okay. to me I, I would put that in a different category like to me like the murder ballads i'm thinking of they kind of read almost like true crime yeah, yeah. descriptions you know which yeah. is it's just not something that's ever drawn me in <laughs> you know I don't, I, my, as yeah. much as i do love horror and horror as a genre like it's not just it's that's kind of one kind of strand that I've just, just never really yeah it's funny because I had Mark O'Connell on the show talking about his new book I, I, about Malcolm no, MacArthur yeah, yeah. Uh, Malcolm MacArthur and uh, 
you know, I'd, I, I try to read true crime. I actually find it weirdly a little um, boring. But like what Mark did, I find completely fascinating, which is like, I'm actually going to try to meet this. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit in the tension with this person who did this without uh, not to be sensationalistic, not to be, but just to sort of be like, how does this person fit? Like, there are plenty of people like this in the world. How does this person fit here? Yeah. And that, to me, that is very vital and necessary and interesting. But I think weirdly with like the true crime stuff for me, I don't like it because I don't, I just don't, I kind of just don't feel it. Like I, I'm not afraid of it. I'm just like, yeah. mm, this people die all s- sorts of ways in this world. You know, um, I, I'm more interested in, um, uh, yeah. Anyway, but I, I'm, I think I'm digressing a little bit too much, but um, yeah, I wanted to say when you're talking about the movie, you know, this thing that uh, is Queen Elizabeth said, right? But let me get the quote right: "Hang all harpers where found and burn the instrument." You know, she said this in the early 17th, like right before her death in the early 17th century, like meaning, you know. Uh, people who are making traditional music or what became traditional music eventually, you know, because there's a real danger to it. So on the one hand, (laughs) I'm envisioning this song or these songs that are dangerous that evoke or bring something up from, you know, the the depths like, uh, you know, the record in Evil Dead or whatever. And on the other hand, like, that's how the British probably just viewed Irish music in general was like, fuck like that's part of the repression and you know uh oppression of irish musicians and like is uh, your music is always dangerous so it's a kind of a horror movie about what's true in some ways <laughs> what you've made yeah, you know? yeah 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 well that's like yeah it's interesting that that quote there because that that's something that really i think goes back as early as the 1400s there was these kind of pronouncements being put out especially for um harpers in ireland because harpers were like really like the elite of mm. musicians you know the i think the um like the honor price of a harper in in irish society was like close to that of a poet which i think you know <laughs> second only to the yeah. king you know they were really really up there in terms of like the class structure of gaelic irish society um, and it, the the power that they had was something that was widely recognised. You know, they, they they would have been like composing praise songs for like the the king, and they would have been like, you know, they would have known the king's genealogy or whatever. Um, but definitely, yeah, they're kind of their that power was something that was removed from them. I think with the downfall of Gaelic Irish society, they were kind of left as a class of people they had no patrons anymore so some of them would have found work being patrons for the anglo-irish like lords and then some of them would have just taken to the roads and had to learn folk music and that intersection of like the old kind of harp music and more kind of i suppose the music of the lower classes was something that maybe like carolyn and harpers like that would have been kind of playing on but um the yeah the whole idea of music as and song as being a seditious force is something i see coming right up into even the 19th century with um you know ballad sheet sellers on the streets they would have had songs confiscated from them and would have been arrested and locked away for like singing these songs out on the street so ballad street ballad sellers would have been selling these like really cheaply printed slips of paper would have had the words of a song written on them and the way they sold them was to stand on the street and actually sing the songs themselves 
and ironically that's where we get like the kind of greatest number of these surviving ballot sheets the ones in the national archives are the ones that were actually confiscated um from the singers at the time yeah well i mean it it's a weird actually this is something i i'm really interested in hearing what you have to say about because i know you like me grew up listening to punk rock and being in that i think we had different kinds of punk scenes that we were in but um you know we definitely felt the way in which the cultural force of music could in some ways lead us to questioning or changing the political realm and the economic realm um so in other words we're kind of attuned to the force and the danger of music but it's such a fine line to walk because um like then you know here's like a really it's a not a punk example but like marilyn manson right is like people were like oh he's responsible for the columbine shootings or whatever right like remember that whole thing and the response from him and other people was like, well, music can't do this. And then on the other hand, I was like, but music is a force which can bring me to change the political realm. Now in Ireland, it could not be one. There's this queen statement. There's the things that you were talking about. It could not be more clear that actually music holds, uh, some power to, uh, you know, strengthen people to go in and affect the political realm. So I'm not sure how to deal with this kind of balance between its power and also protecting it from saying, oh, it's so powerful <laughs> yeah, that we yeah, don't have to take yeah, responsibility, yeah. you know. Um, let me just make one more point on it and then let you run with it. It was like my friend who's just a pretty intense Marxist in the U.S., she was watching that um, – what is it? Once upon a time in Northern Ireland or whatever, this new documentary series about the troubles basically. And she was like, can you point me in the direction of stuff that's like about the conflict, but that's not squeamish about the violence. Cause she doesn't care of it. And I was like, you know, there really actually isn't that much written because Irish people have trouble with um, some of the more violent aspects of that struggle for complex reasons. But it is in a lot of the music is kind of unabashedly <laughs> yeah. just like fuck it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was trying to just get her to listen to some music. So that's one example in which I can think of, you know, it does have this force, and I don't know. Like I feel weird even saying this because I'm like, well, I don't want people to try to censor the music or something like yeah, that. Yeah. But that's because it's on my side. If it weren't on my side, you know, if if I didn't agree with the structures of power that it was assaulting. But it was like after mine, I'd be like, "Oh fuck!" Like get rid yeah. of that music, or something. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing about folklore is it always like comes down on the side of the underdog. You know, no matter who the underdog is in any situation, yeah. if it's a char- a character in a folk tale, or it's you know people writing songs, it's always on the underdog side. So I think you know that's something where you could, oh, yeah. I mean, generally, I was up for the underdog as well. You know. Yeah. All you know, depending on some things, but um, I think yeah, very like obvious example to bring up of like people viewing music as having some power, and that being a very kind of scary prospect for them is the scenes from the Wolf Tones set in Electric Picnic, you know, and just the reaction of Middle Ireland to that, like outright like surprise and disgust and dismay, and I think it's, it's can a, you can you just say what happened for yeah. 
Yeah, so so the Wolf Tones, um, a band like widely recognised, probably like one of the biggest of the rebel ballad bands, right. named after a revolutionary socialist. Yeah, right, right. yeah, yeah. Um, they, yeah, I mean, you know, very famous for singing songs like "Come Out Your Black and Tans" and "Have You No Homes to Go to British Soldiers." And but there was like an unprecedented number of people who went to check out their set. Like, there's aerial photographs of not just the tent that they played in being completely round but like thousands and thousands of people outside the tent trying to make their way in to listen to to their set and just people being like so shocked and disgusted at this and being what are they doing listen to this band and trying to blame on any one of a number of things but really just showing how out of touch they are i think with kind of uh, current youth culture at the moment and that's kind of leads into a bigger question of something that i think has been going on in ireland going back you know going back to the troubles and before whereby middle ireland in in the, in the republic and how they viewed the events in, in the north of ireland because i know plenty of people who grew up in belfast and they would have grown up singing these songs and um, from a very early age and they're just in in like nationalist communities in the north there isn't the, the same kind of like shame and embarrassment that they have over this thing um, and i think it has to do with the kind of just the wider view of north of ireland and the troubles that people down here have which a lot of the time is just like oh, just, that's just this thing that goes on up there you know i would have grown up with that attitude in the 80s you know every night on the news you would have seen oh there's a, a bomb has gone off or the, the ira killed three people last night or the ira have claimed responsibility for this bomb or the, you know the the ruc shot these people yes it was like literally every single day and being a kid and asking my man and dad about it and then being oh yeah that's just this thing it's called the north of ireland and it, it's 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 miles away up it's there not our neighborhood yeah, yeah don't worry about it and then you know um when i was 17 17 or 18 starting to go up to gigs up in belfast and they had, used to have a punk festival there um in a center called the Warzone, Warzone center and Warzone festival and going up to them and being like hang on a second this is literally two hours up the road <laughs> like two hours and i grew up all my life with this idea that it was like this really far away place and like a, a different country i know you could yeah make the argument that politically it is a different country but like come on it's, it's literally up the road yeah, yeah. Um, on the same island yeah do you think that there's like another time component here like so songs that songs that kind of uh deepened and intensified a sense of irish resistant identity like so we can't be eroded by colonial power as long as we have these songs or the sentiment that you know these that uh unfurls into these songs but now it's like you know this thing i see happening here a lot which is to me a little i mean i'm not going to tell irish people how to live their lives in ireland but a little heartbreaking in a way where it's like well we're ready to move on and be part of the global like conversation, which really means to my mind a lot in Dublin, like doing what America is doing in certain American cities. And so now those songs represent like a past that needs to be kind of forgotten or, or we shouldn't have those songs anymore because um, they're representing uh, a past that slowed our so-called progress into a more, 
kind of neoliberal networked globalized way of being. And I want to say that very cautiously because I'm not advocating for isolationism or, you know, Ireland for the Irish, obviously that would work quite terribly against me as an an immigrant who's half Syrian in, in Ireland or whatever. But what those songs, what their strength comes from was holding a kind of resonance with the past. And now there's a fear of, you know, evoking the past. Yeah. I Like, I think there's a, a very like definite sense of embarrassment for certain sections of like Irish society, like I was saying, um, to do with these songs. And it's, yeah, I think some of it is definitely bound up with the idea that like, Oh, you know, we're, we're like, we're a cosmopolitan nation, you know, we're, we're like, we're all Europeans now. And this is, you know, it's, it's, and especially like when it comes to the wolf tones, because I think people really view them as like one of the more kind of primitive, um, kind of aspects of traditional music and the whole world of rebel ballads and those kind of songs, they like really see as like a a stain and a blot on our culture. You know, they're like, Oh, it's connected to hooliganism and, and terrorism and stuff like that, you know? But, um, I just think it's been really interesting to see them kind of scramble around trying to come up with reasons like why are young people into this how could they be right. it has to be because they don't understand they don't know their history they're not aware of what happened in the north because they're youngsters how could they know what it was like mm. you know it was one one thing that I, I hear people saying um, but I think this this embarrassment that you you see kind of coming out I mean I think you you kind of see it in the same way when when people talk about travelers as well you know to i think a lot of people even like bringing up the traveler community is an embarrassment it's almost like it's just something that that shouldn't be you know mm. and i think it's a uh, it, it evokes a kind of a, a similar feeling to like groups like the wolf's tones or rebel ballads or sections of society that just people deem or it's just kind of it's just kind of embarrassing that they're there you know it's a it's a hark back to a past that people are embarrassed of and you know definite like post-colonial mindsets going on with the whole thing yeah i mean so one of the things that i like i have a it's not in here but i have a book somewhere here called uh a new ireland and it's from like 1930 and like one of the things i noticed is this huge preoccupation here with um wanting to go back to real ireland or move to a new Ireland. And this like conversation has just been happening, obviously, at least definitely from the time that, but there's a lot of books called a new Ireland, you know, for like a really long time. Um, you know, and like you see it in obviously just sort of fascist sentiment of like, we need to be Irish. Like all these immigrants are coming here and eroding our culture. But then there's also the other side of it, which is like, again, like this sort of neoliberal, like tech apocalypse bullshit that's happening in Dublin and like you know luckily it's kind of contained here but threatens to swallow you know the entire island and so I think there's this weird tension between well what like I've really felt this since I got here that like a lot of Irish people are like what do we do now like we're not we're not resisting the colonial power in the same way. We still are, but it's not the same kind of resistance anymore. The church is still in power, but not in the same way. There's a distinction. Um, although I say that with as a caveat, 
my friend Kaylin Hogan says the Catholic Church thinks in centuries, so like don't think that they've lost the game quite yet, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but all these like so much has changed that it's like there's like this weird kind of energy of stasis here, and I think in some ways just bringing it back to the very first question that I asked you, it's like okay, well if I can touch. If I can touch the ground now here in Ireland and know that there's a song there, that know that there's songs there, but that those songs have changed as well. The feeling of those songs have changed. The way that we can interact and work with them can change and transform. I think maybe that's giving people the sense of like, I don't exactly know where we're going, but I know that we can go somewhere. I know that we can do something. Obviously, it's a very complex and overwrought way of saying, why do people like Lancome? But I do think, <laughs> you know, I don't it's think people are thinking that. But I do think it might be like kind of resonating with people in that uh, that way, you know? Like, there is a way forward that doesn't mean losing all that we've had up to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we don't have to stay where we are and stagnate. We don't have to go backwards, like you're saying. We we can move forwards in new ways, provided that we are allowed to interrogate our Irishness and do that in a in a in a free environment and in a kind of in an open way, whereby we're not kind of stilted by shame or there isn't various hangups that keep us from looking at certain aspects or there's not like an overbearing dominant institution like the the catholic church that's you know kind of controlling our, our our thoughts and even our internal life to a large degree but that's when i look kind of look out and i see now there is a whole new generation of irish people who are interrogating their own irishness much in the same way as we are in this band and for us that's something like you were talking earlier about the sense that the songs we have aren't aren't they don't sound like they're finished they don't sound like they're done and to me they're not to me when when we make a song we're constantly working on it in a live context we're constantly adding to it we're constantly subtracting from it it's it's constantly in development and much in the same way our sound does and that's you know something that's evolving with every album we put out it's evolved further in certain ways um and it's a new thing so we're constantly interrogating ourselves interrogating the music what the music means to us mm. how that relates to the wider Irish question I think that's what people are doing and I think there is a new generation now that just doesn't have the same kind of shame and the same hang-ups that and the same baggage really that like I would have had when I was like in my early 20s or as a teenager like so many just weird like and shameful connections to Irish culture where I couldn't figure out if I completely hated all of it or if I loved it, you know. And that's something that just continues to this day. And that I, I have the outlet for that, like with the podcast and with, you know, making music with Lancome. I have that outlet. And I think maybe, you know, there's just so many other people out there who are kind of going through a similar thing and that's why they're connecting to it in a way. Yeah, you you said interrogating Irishness a bunch of times. I don't exactly know what that means. I mean, maybe you don't either. Maybe that's the interrogation is like, what are what are we? What are we doing? Like, what the fuck is this anyway? But it's it's interesting. It's it's interesting to think of like, here's this thing which is supposed to be what you are, Irish, and um, <laughs> and yet, as soon as I begin to look at it. 
it starts to disrupt everything that I am. So it just actually takes like taking a look at it to feel it, its effects kind of undoing everything, you know, that's so interesting. I mean, I have my own versions of that, particularly with, you know, being Syrian and also, um, you know, and with my sexuality and all that kind of stuff, but it's, but it is so fascinating to me that what the entire world would think outside of Ireland would think of an Irish person, you know, it's like you decide to look at that and suddenly the world changes from your own eyes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like I was saying before, a lot of it would have had like from, I would have been like very conscious of being Irish from a very early age, you know, but just like my parents talking to me about like the Irish language or English imperialism or watching like I remember like being six years old and my dad bring me downstairs to watch Zulu warfare and uh, be like see like the, you know they're fighting the Brits just like we had to do uh-huh, and like kind of uh-huh. drawn parallels between the Irish struggle and the, the, the struggle of like African nations and kind of being and not just being kind of open and kind of exposed to this kind of stuff from a very early age but then also having the reaction to it as a very young teenage punk yeah being like no i hate all this stuff you know i absolutely hate it. it's so conservative having in school my irish teachers were always my religion teachers as well so are people who were coming from a very mm-hmm. like a, a very definite kind of version of irishness and that's what i was exposed to that's something that i reacted against very strongly got expelled from schools because of falling out with certain teachers and stuff like that so like just really had a dreadful time kind of just wasn't interested in any of it it's like oh what so you go to this disco and you have to sing the national anthem at the end of the night like uh-huh. like i absolutely <laughs> could not stand it yeah um like reacted against it very strongly and then ironically like a couple of years later really like came back and discovered it on my own terms and realized it, it wasn't what i had been led to believe it was um and that there was just as there yeah there is a definitely like a conservative strain in irish music there's also a very radical like left-wing and socialist strain to folk as well yeah you know yeah can so maybe like the last thing i just want to ask you about then is this turn for you can you remember the time when you thought i am gonna start reworking and working with and around these irish songs um where you moved into thinking i'm really gonna actually i'm gonna do this what a surprise to me that i'm doing this maybe but um is, was there a time when you can connect to either a decision that was made or just a witnessing of yourself doing it and being like what the fuck am i doing i guess i'm doing this yeah um it's hard to think of a specific time because it's something that i just found myself getting into very gradually and then i can see myself when i got to the kind of a beginning of a kind of an incremental increase in my own interest or in activity in doing a song but maybe it was when like I can look back to when we started playing gigs as a four piece with Lancome and just looking around and being like oh looks like I'm I'm doing this now you know <laughs> like because before that I had been like playing for like over 10 years with my brother as lynched and we would have started off just playing our own songs and then gradually we would have brought in traditional songs into the repertoire where I think just before we started playing with Cormac and Rady I think we maybe kind of just started concentrating on just traditional songs 
but then I think like with Cormac and Rady in the band kind of looking around and going oh so I'm in a band now there's a fiddle player concertina player guitar player I'm playing the pipes Fuck. Like, like how did this happen you know thanks dad yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and just being like well I, I suppose I've kind of come around full circle now at this stage you know and that's interesting because at that stage I think I was definitely really far removed from my like punk and metal background because I'd kind of start going really deep down the rabbit hole of like just straight up traditional music at that point like on a kind of i would have started going to traditional sessions and stuff and hadn't gone to any gigs or anything in a while and kind of in my head i kind of had been seeing the two things as just so separate you know i could never i could never bring them together but then i think since then like over the last 10 years it's been you know a matter of resolving those two things in my own head and being like well maybe they don't have to be so radically different maybe they don't have to be so far apart and and maybe again like the kind of music that Lankham is making is reflecting that kind of process as well yeah it's always funny i think to just look at where we've ended up a lot of times it is exactly the thing that we thought we were resisting in the first place because the resistance is actually a, an attract is like is a deep attraction and the wrong path for that obviously is to become what you hate um and a lot of people do that unfortunately but the right path is to you know deepen your understanding of why you were attracted to the thing in the first place and to yeah you know really go with it yeah yeah and also just to stay open and allow yourself to evolve and allow yourself to it's okay to change your mind about certain things you know just I don't think stubbornness ever gets us anywhere or like digging your heels in the sand and be like, no, I feel like this about some way. It's just like, we'll stay open to it and maybe you'll start to kind of um, like understand this thing or interact with it in a different way. And like, who knows where that can lead, you know, with this, like what we're doing with Lancome now, I listen to the music we're making and we're going, look, this is, this is great. Like I haven't really heard much stuff that sounds like this. I don't know if there is out there. I'm like, oh, this, I don't, I'm not really into what we're doing now, but it only comes from being open to these different processes and like just allowing things to just slowly change and tra- transmutate. And like we're saying earlier, take the <laughs> circum, yeah. circumlocutious route. Yeah, I mean, that transformation, that's also a lesson from the other world, isn't it? It's like all the changing shapes and the changing into different beings and animals and um, different forms and even moods and all that kind of stuff. It's like you've just uh, decided to be like, you know, it's like you just create a little portal to that realm in your life. So, you know, watch out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, maybe at a certain stage you should freeze it all. Yeah, right, like, no, this exactly. is as good as it gets. It's only going to be downhill from here. Just so, say, no more evolution. Yeah. <laughs> just say thank you and like leave a little gift and yeah, then walk yeah. away. Yeah. Well, I don't know. What, like, what do you think there has to be some kind of like uh, internal like tension to make a person want to create art in like in any way? Do you need to have some kind of like uneasiness or. It's such. I think it's so different with every kind of art, but I mean, I know that I write out of agitation for sure. Like it used to be when I was younger that I would get so agitated that like I would just furiously like write things so hard in a notebook that the pen would actually like rip through the page. It was like I was doing automatic writing and that's no good. I mean, that's when your own consciousness is actually kind of blotted out by the thing that's coming through. I find that quite dangerous, but 
like there's this guy Valentin Tomberg. He's this uh, Catholic occultist, and he said, you know, we must not we must not rely on the angels to rescue us when we make art. Meaning, you can't just dive into the unconscious and hope something will come save you. It's good to keep the two forms of consciousness at the same time where you are yourself but you do go into the realm of you know that realm where the art comes from or comes through and so as i get older it's been like just this process of being able to be myself as i touch that kind of dangerous struggling place that astral realm which is wild with all the shapes and and beans and sights and stuff that are there yeah yeah. i think when i was younger and probably you too like if you're into punk it's like really attracted to people that are actually overwhelmed by the thing that they're creating yeah because it's like wow man like they're real they're They're really in it Yeah, yeah but it's like i don't i actually don't think that that's where the best stuff comes from like trance states in in that kind of astral realm i now think it's more if i if I can somehow stay coherent in my own being, which doesn't always mean like I am now writing this. It's not yeah, like yeah. that. It's more, uh, I am, I can just feel my own presence as the thing comes through. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. Do you feel that too? Yeah. I know what you mean. Like, yeah. um, yeah. When you like how I would maybe experience something similar as if you were writing a song and like, you know, I also get that when you write a song, you're just like, I have no idea where I came from, but these words are in my head and you're writing it down. But also, you know, you need to exercise a bit of quality control and keep, yeah. you know, cognizant of what you're actually doing. You know, not you're not totally just getting lost in this, like you said, in this trance state. Because the song, I mean, if the songs come to you or the stories come to me or whatever, it wants to, it it wants to come through your prism for a reason. Mm. You know, you have something to offer it that you can bring, you can bring it a new kind of life. Um, otherwise it would just land on anybody and they would just, yeah. Or you're it. not just an empty vessel. It's just flowing through, you know? That's, yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. Although it does require some emptying, right? Like you do have to, Oh yeah. 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 You, I mean, yeah, definitely like freeing up some of the clutter that I, I might've had earlier in life is definitely being a kind of a, a goal of mine for the last yeah. number of years you know and just like yeah no like stopping drinking is one part of that like s- swimming in the sea regularly or meditation yeah. that definitely all helps the drinking's really i mean that, <laughs> it's really important i mean i not i mean whatever people can drink as much or as little as i want i'm not like judging anybody else but i know that like you know i mean they're called spirits for a reason it's like you know they're waiting to jump into you the moment you take that first sip oh, yeah. and it does affect everything you do including yeah. the art that you make it becomes really not through you but through something else yeah and that's something i really only started to realize after having been like a few months into sobriety you know even though like i wasn't it's not like i was drinking all the time but i might like if i went out twice a week once twice three times a week that's something it's something that's always there and it takes a long time for you to kind of wake up from that and you're like oh my god there was like this constant like a low level fog that was just there always and you don't even realize that because you think that's your normal base state because you've just never experienced any different if you're drinking like in our society i think like most people would be drinking from the age of 16 15 14 even on a kind of regular or semi-regular kind of basis you know 
once a week even once every two weeks and that's enough to kind of just change your kind of base state i think you know and that's something i just had no idea i was only i think yeah like two months in i was like oh hang on a second like just looking around and wow this is like this is amazing and after i really experienced i'd given up before for like a month at a time and i'd be like i'm fine i can give up for a month if i want so don't have anything to worry about but it was only after going like a good bit longer than that i kind of looked around and been like wow i i I do not want to go back to that state i feel so much better now (laughs) yeah what is mike Patton said this thing like he was like uh i don't i don't you know like drinking and doing drugs takes so much time i don't understand how other musicians do it yeah you know <laughs> yeah yeah that's the thing and especially i don't know when you get to like into your 40s you're like you want to become more intentional about it. you know your time here is finite your time as this combination of atoms it's completely finite you know you're not getting another shot it's like what do i want to actually spend my time doing where do i want my energy to go you become more aware of the energy you have in your body being a finite thing you have to kind of plan ahead you have to go well if i cycle into town i'm going to be a bit tired later on you can't just do everything you know so it's like you're like well what do i want to do i have all these projects that i want to take part of but i know if i continue drinking i'm not going to be able to have to do maybe that one and that one but i'll have to leave out that one but i get way more excited about different projects and i got like the podcast and the band solo project doing like soundtrack stuff and like i want to do all these things and more so like drinking just has to go yeah i mean i think it's like for me it's like that it's like spirits and counter spirits it's like i want to i want to encounter the the spiritual realm in the way that i want to like not just the way that's you know bottled up like not just the way that comes in when i when i i mean i don't i i don't i've never really drank that much except for like a few years when i was younger but um or doing drugs or whatever thank god like my life would be completely different yeah. i don't know how i couldn't have handled i don't think i could have handled growing up here as much as i wanted to live here my entire life like i i would not have been able to mediate all that because there's also no cultural shame around it really here whereas in the us still like if you were to drink every day someone would be like are you sure you know like they would kind yeah, of right. like pull you aside but here it's just like oh well it's yeah fine. yeah yeah or people yeah if, if you bring it up it's like ah it's grand what are you talking about you know it's grand <laughs> absolutely and i mean i've grown like you know can look at it now from uh, a very different light but it, you kind of look at your family and on, on both sides and they're actually alkaline you're just like everybody drinks so much it's crazy so much and it's not like it's just something that's almost they're like defensive about you know so like yeah that's what we do come on it's grand yeah, yeah. and uh, but in a, in a way you know i can see how that plays a part in society because like in, in my family definitely like people don't really have deep conversations they don't you know if they meet each other and drink a cup of tea there's a certain kind of conversations that happens if you're having a cup of tea with someone there's a certain sure, kind of conversation yeah. that happens if you're drinking 10 pints with someone and the kind of way i see my family like expressing themselves with each other and like really like sorting out all the nitty-gritty stuff it only happens when they're out having points with each other and i think at this stage if you took drink out of the equation they wouldn't have that they wouldn't be able to figure out another way of doing it yeah so i think it definitely does have its place in just like dealing with kind of the psyche and you know i would would stop short of calling it a form of psychotherapy but it's something along those lines it's some kind of outlet they have that i think we've evolved along that way that it's in a way kind of necessary i mean i'm not saying i think the younger generation now i see like with my son 16 but i think his kind of generation are more able to express these things and talk about these things 
but I think yeah. for to take drink out of the equation for people from 30 up 40 up I, I don't know how that will go yeah well I mean def- definitely people have different cultural experiences of alcohol and how it sort of affects their cultures in positive and negative ways but it is interesting. I mean, the way it intersects with emotional expression here. I mean, again, you know, no, I never, it's like just that joyful shouting that I'm never going to do the thing again, that I'm obviously going to do again, <laughs> probably in the next 10 minutes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause I'm in the place doing it. Um, it does like create a playfulness around emotional expression. That's not yeah. Like I've been watching, um, uh, so sorry to my boyfriend for revealing this, but my boyfriend and I have been watching Star Trek The Next Generation a lot lately, which is just fucking great. It's really good to watch a show that's about getting how humanity gets things right, you know, like we we got it right. But there's this, you know, Android character, Data, and he's like, he's never seen any Star Trek ever before, and he's fascinated with Data. And I'm yeah. like, I was like, you're just really into data because you're Irish and like, you just don't have any access to your emotional state. So (laughs) seeing someone slowly open up to their emotional being is like really thrilling for you. And he's just like, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I can see how that would work. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) absolutely. But it is, I mean, and then that also affects the music, right? It affects the audience, you know, Irish audiences at concerts are also weirdly polite for people that are um, completely wasted. Like, I find that really interesting. They're reverential because of the way that music exists, but also because you guys, a lot of times, will know your audience, which I think, especially with traditional music, you might know the people that are in the audience, which would change things entirely. So, you know, uh, uh, then, you know, playing to, like, masses of people that you don't know. Yeah, Yeah, but also I think... (sighs) Like, people are polite, and definitely when we play in Dublin, people know when to be quiet. Or, let's say, not just Dublin, but anywhere in Ireland, really, apart from Belfast. They're, they're fuckers up there. They do not know how to be quiet at gigs. But, uh, like, say, like, Dublin, Cork, Galway, you know, they'll be really quiet when they have to be, but then, like, ecstatic when they know they can go for it. Yeah. And that's something as well about, like, maybe to do with the Irish kind of relationship to, like, emotional release and outlets that they have such like a bottled up kind of store of emotional energy that you know having those moments where you can release it is more important because i've never like seeing how an audience reacts in dublin or cork i don't think we've ever gotten anywhere else in the world Uh uh-huh yeah maybe glasgow no i mean for me it's completely weird it's like there's no pushing and shoving there's no like people just losing their shit and doing rude things i mean i've I've seen it once in a great while but it's it's i'm just almost completely absent yeah at irish concerts i'm just like i think that's that's kind of more surprising because people are totally shit-faced while exactly yeah well i mean I, i think irish people in a lot of ways well they can't they can be good at drinking and this brings me back i remember like yeah. luke chee <laughs> yeah, was telling me he was like going you know you know and you have to like serve your time to the drink you know you have to that's why you have to drink when you're younger and you have to learn how to deal with it because if you don't learn how to drink loads then then when you grow up you're gonna just like you're gonna get drunk and you're gonna fuck up you're gonna be like stumbling around the place and getting in twice like you have to serve your time to it it's like slowly <laughs> yeah like slowly acclimatizing yourself to strychnine by eating a tiny yeah, bit like so yeah, you yeah. never be poisoned so yeah. yeah it won't kill you then yeah. when you take a big dose <laughs> But then, I mean, I, I say that as a big generalization. Obviously, you can go down to Camden Street at the weekend and you're going to see a lot of people who 
haven't served their time to yeah, drink, yeah, yeah, you know, like yeah. a lot of people who are fucking up. Or, yeah, it's like, it's actually, you you, you got to serve just the right amount of time. Because then again, if it's too much, then yeah. you're also like on the other side of it and just completely fucked. Yeah. But I mean, it's really amazing to see some traditional musicians who can be like, you know, throwing points into them until they can't walk and then someone will put a fiddle in their hand and they'll be just like yeah. lashing the tunes out, like playing perfectly. It's yeah. that's really like you know that the kind of playing that can only come from a lifetime of having learned to play while drunk. It's like you, you teach yourself how to play an instrument, then you teach your drunk self how to play the instrument. And they've taught their drunk self how to play the instrument, and it's just so impressive to see. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, there's so many more things that I want to talk about with you. So I hope I let's let's do this again yeah yeah for sure, absolutely for sure. yeah, yeah 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 i'd love to yeah yeah <laughs> um so thank you i mean i i love your music i love your podcast and uh i just knew it would be an easy and fun time talking oh to you. thanks so, so thank much that so was much. a really interesting yeah. <laughs> yeah interview yeah it was brilliant yeah thanks yeah and thank you uh thanks ian lynch and thanks everybody for listening uh bye now oh, the lord and his lady they went walking one day, said the Lord to his lady, those words he did say. Be aware of false Lancome, artisan of his men. Be aware of us, Nora, and don't let her in. And I'm not afraid of false Lancome, artisan of his men. And I've my fairly bolted. And my windows are in. No, the Lord was not long gone when false lying come came in. And he knocked the door and the nurse let him in. Say now where is the Largan? Artis is he adding? He is gone to fair England for to speak to the king. And the false Norlagev son was a stab in this side False and all I guess on Was a stab of a knife False nor false nor Are you asleep or awake? Don't you hear my fine baby And a cry so awake I cannot please your baby 
Medapres milk or wine, I would beg you, my lady, would you that live a while? It is how could I get down there this dark, dreary night? Without a fire before me, our candle to light. You have three of those bright mantles, dear as bright as the moon. You put one head in all around you. You will get a one here soon. She put one head in all around her. She came tripping downstairs into forest lane. Comes I run, this lady appeared. False Lancome, False Lancome, will you spare me one hour? I'll give you as much money, oh, that lies in my power. If you give me as much money, that my horses could not draw, that will not keep my bright sword from your white naked jaw. False Lancome, false Lancome, will you spare me one hour? I'll give you my daughter, Basie. She's the flock of a deep flower. You call down your daughter, Basie, and I send her to work. Far to scour the silver basin. Far to hold your heart's blood, daughter Bessie, daughter Bessie, keep yourself locked up high, cause your dad, oh, he will come here when he's late now, by and by. Oh, false Lancome was not long gone, was a right from this place. When the Lord he came here, and the place in last grace, there was blood in the kitchen. There was blood in the hall, there was blood in the cradle, it was far sad in all. 
There was blood in the kitchen. There was blood in the hall. And the young queen of England lying dead by the wall. Daughter Bessie, daughter Bessie, it is who was Adam. For Selene come, he was here twenty of his brave men. For was hung in, was a scaffold so high. And in her she was born in the hills of her mind. I don't know why you're like that.